All right. So welcome to the second part of today's episode on science or climate science and uh, climate activism. And for that second part, we're joined here by Marta Wenz, assistant professor here at the IVM, the Institute for Environmental Studies. Welcome, Marta. Thank you. Thank you, Mathieu. Um, all right, Marta, let's immediately delve into it. Um, I've introduced you as an assistant professor in water security and societal impacts. Um, what does an assistant professor in water security do? Well, I am mainly interested in drought risks, so that side of the water spectrum, and I'm looking into drought risks in Europe and in Africa, and then I try to qualify, quantify the losses, the losses that people experience. So I'm not only looking into the physical side of it, but I'm also looking into the social aspects of it. So trying to quantify whether people will migrate or whether they will be malnourished or whether there will be losses in energy production or in agricultural production, these kind of things. And I'm also looking into adaptive behavior. That means I'm looking into why people would take up measures that can protect themselves from drought risks. So how they can mitigate the risks and what drives them to do it, but also how effective it is. So that's what I'm studying here at the view. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've introduced you also, I think, as, as a climate activist. Um, do you consider yourself to be a climate activist? Yeah, yeah, ex I, I would definitely consider myself as a climate activist. And, and that would have been the same even before I joined Scientist Rebellion as a climate movement. But I think um, I'm always outspoken about climate issues, about the climate crisis and about the social injustices that it leads to. Um, and so also, both in my research and in my personal actions, I always have been a little bit active in that sense. For example, the, the discussions I choose to have, but also the research topics I try to study. So even before actually joining a movement, I think I would have considered myself as a climate activist. Mm -hmm. And and what do you? how would you define a climate activist? Is it just someone who's outspoken about this topic or someone who's actually also physically active, as in going uh, into street protests and, and stuff like that? That's good question, but I think I would say someone that is going out of their comfort zone to actually try to make a change or doing something out of the box that is normally not considered part of your daily activities. As soon as you're doing that, and that can be slightly connected to your research, or it can be totally something different in your free time. Um, but all of that, I would consider activism. It's trying to push for change, and you can do that in many, many ways. Um, I think I've been consciously a climate activist because I'm in the climate movement and I'm out of out of the lab and into the streets to say, um, so then it's more clear, but I consider activism broader than that as well. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, well, interesting answer. And, and I can imagine there are as many activists as you have definitions of, of uh, activism, of course, uh, as well. For sure. Um, yeah. Um, talking about that and, and where your drive comes from. Um, yeah. What, what, what made you? an activist is there is there a specific point in time that you can say well this is a moment where i realized i need to go outside of the lab outside of outside of the ivory tower if you will or is that something that happened gradually um both is true actually there is one specific moment but in general i wanted to become a researcher because i thought i could really make an impact and i thought okay if i become you know a full professor i will have a huge influence on research agendas um and i will be able to influence policy but then i realized at one point that's definitely going to be too late you know we only have 10 years left to actually make the drastic uh, decisions the drastic reductions in, in emissions that are needed to secure a livable world for all so that means i cannot just wait till i am 
whatever full professor, I can do something now. Um, and through my research, I have seen the limits of adaptations, the limits of what, how the climate can actually push people into an eternal loop of poverty or, or suffering. Um, and that has driven me to do even more so now. And one specific moment was when I made a drought risk assessment for Botswana, which is a very arid country, um, and it's producing a lot of beef for export. And beef uses a lot of water, so it doesn't really make sense. But anyway, I made a risk assessment of the current drought risk, but also of the future uh, risk under climate change, under unmitigated climate change. And when I was presenting that research to policymakers there, to actual national policymakers, they were just listening to me. And at one point, someone asked like, hey, uh, but what you're presenting, just science, right? It's not what's going to happen in reality. And then I was like, uh, no, this is actually what I think will happen if we don't do anything against climate change. And they were like, oh, whoa, but what should we do? Because we cannot handle this. You know, this is impossible. The amount of drought conditions that we will see, we cannot handle. Our production systems will totally collapse. And then for me, that was a relation both that my way of communicating was not working because they kind of didn't really believe it till the moment that we took a step back and said like, okay, let's look at what this actually means for you. And secondly, also that, well, these people in Botswana have contributed a very few to the actual problem, to the emissions, to the CO2 uh, that is now um, in our atmosphere um, pushing our planet in a crisis. And so I couldn't really tell them, hey, yeah, you should also, you know, do this or this. I felt like, okay, it's actually up to us, me, people in the global north, in the Western countries uh, that have contributed to the problem that can do much more. And I felt really guilty at that time. And that dr drove me to do more than I was already doing. Okay, that's really interesting. And, and um, I'm intrigued by that particular example about Botswana and the way in which uh, policymakers actually reacted to that. Uh, because that's not even a reaction to activism. It's also a reaction to just basic science, right? And is that a reaction that you get often? This, wow, is it really that bad? I feel almost everyone, I mean, you cannot ignore information in the news about the climate. And I mean, some people try to ignore it, but most people are aware. But I think very few people are really um, aware of when you get all the information together, if you see it all together, coming together, you have the biodiversity crisis, you have the climate crisis, you have resource and extravism that is putting pressure on much of the land, especially that of indigenous people. If you look into what climate scientists actually predict, and then you see actually policymakers being very happy that there is some kind of change in the policy field, you see there is a bit, bit, big mismatch. You have the climate scientists that think, well, you know, if we stop now with emitting, it's fine. And then you have the policy scientists that know this is never ever going to happen you know behavioral scientists knows this is not a possibility while these policy scientists maybe are a little bit too um naive about the severity of the physical side and once you realize you know both sides are maybe not fully seen that picture but once you 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 start reading about it it becomes really clear how bad it is and i think not so many people are actually um have that have that realization yet yeah yeah so it's it's a matter of connecting the dots a, a little bit as well i can imagine yeah yeah exactly um if you zoom in on one thing you can say well this is very bad and i see that in my institute a lot if you zoom in on the floods it's very bad if you zoom in on the droughts it's very bad if you zoom in on the storms it's very bad sea level rise also but if you zoom out and you see well it's gonna be bad on multiple sides yeah. then it gets scary and i think 
some people try not to think about it too much because you don't really become very happy. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that helps your, yourself coping. But if all the climate scientists do that, then it doesn't show the scary situation we are in. Because for others, when, they are, when the climate scientists keep calm, it yeah. seems like, okay, it's going to be okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do have to say, we talked earlier um, in our series, in the first episode, actually, with uh, Professor Bart van den Herk, and he actually really explained very well about the need to connect all the dots and to look at climate change from a very holistic perspective. Fully agree. A, a systems perspective. Yes, uh, I fully agree with that. I, I think that is the way forward, and it will, I, I, it will help many more scholars, scientists, um, see the, the severity of the, the situation, but I hope also see uh, pathways to solutions that are there, currently maybe not implemented, definitely not implemented at the scale that is needed, but maybe we will see more pathways when we start looking in a holistic mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. uh, that's really important. Um, before we continue uh, about your activism and, and what role it plays in, in, in also your capacity as a scientist, I do want to talk about... Um, what you said there, if you start connecting the dots and you see how severe the crisis is now, um, and you often hear that in, in, um, in reporting as well, there's this notion of climate anxiety. Um, is that something that overwhelms you sometimes as well? And if so, how do you deal with that? I mean, I think it overwhelms everyone who worries upon it. And I think it is a, I mean, I sometimes feel like oh my God, is this really what we're uh, up for? And then you go outside and you feel the world is still going, continuing as normal. And sometimes it helps and you can just, you know, continue and it helps not to think about it all the time. And in other times you feel like you want to do something. And that's also uh, the the reason why I found a climate movement and to connect to it, because it gives you also the tools of something to do more than you were already doing. And it helps you coping with that climate anxiety. There's actually research showing that, um, that youth has a, a huge percentage of youth is, is dealing with some, some form of climate anxiety, but people that are joining a climate movement have that way less. So it shows actually um, that it helps coping with that. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. Um, yeah. So, that's a nice segue into um, uh, what you, uh, perhaps what drives your activism as well, and in particular, perhaps the, um, well, the campaign or the movement that you are affiliated with, if I can put it like that, and that is Scientist Rebellion. Um, can you explain to the listeners who aren't familiar with that uh, organization what Scientist Rebellion is, what type of organization it is? Sure. I wouldn't say it's an organization. It's more like a network or a, or a movement. And it's a collective of scholars and scientists. So uh, all people linked doing a PG or post-PG working at academic institutions or research organizations that are very uh, concerned with the environmental crisis, with the climate crisis, and that want to do something more. They think they should or they can do something more in their capacity as being a scientist or a wetenschapper. Um, and so, yeah, it's a sister organization of Extinction Rebellion. So we're kind of the scientific wing of it in the sense that we try to do a lot of science-based activism or try to support the climate movement with the science that is out there because we all have access to any publications. We have access to all the literature because of our affiliation. And so with that um, access, we should do something. And then the second thing is... Um, Many of us think, well, science has communicated about this 
risks of climate uh, change, about the risks of biodiversity collapse. Um, and there has been lots of communication, but it hasn't worked up to the point that it's worked enough to avoid the crisis. So we're teaching people all the time, so we should learn ourselves. And I think we learned from that, let's try new things, new ways of communicating through, for example, direct action. We put things on the map, uh, under attention, and so that that's um, our current approach of, of informing society is just not always working. So let's try something new to make this clear. And as a scientist, I think you can do that. What do you mean by direct action? Yeah, so what we do with, with Scientists' Rebellion is uh, nonviolent action. So it's, uh, nonviolence is a very important part. And we do civil disobedience. That means we consciously openly break a certain law to show um, we don't agree with this situation and we want to create some friction showing um, there is something wrong. For example, this policy is really, really harmful, harmful for our future. This policy is hurting people now somewhere else or us in the future. And uh, through that friction, through that creating attention, awareness, we highlight um, specific issues and I think um, it has shown in the past that, that such a civil disobedience can be a way to push for drastic changes when, when it is hard because there is, for example, huge lobby groups. So a nice example in Amsterdam is, you know, when I started working in Amsterdam, I'm Belgian, I came to a bike utopia, you know, there is bikes everywhere. Yeah. It looks like the most bike-friendly city in the world. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't always like that. Before there was, after the world where there was, everything was for the cars, there was a car lobby going on and politicians were always blaming the people. You have to be uh, safe yourself, you know, protect your kids yourself. It's your responsibility. And in such a situation where you have this lobby where um, the focus is on the individuals, they should do something. When you understand it's actually the system that has to change, then civil disobedience can work. And that worked in Amsterdam. In Amsterdam, there were huge die-ins with all cyclists covering streets, blocking streets streets mm -hmm. and now we have a bike friendly city yeah 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 um well i happen to be from belgium as well <laughs> um but um and and i mean it's absolutely clear that um these are conscious political choices to make a city more bike friendly i mean i spend a lot of time in brussels as well and there i see that tension between uh cyclists who want to make the city more uh cycling friendly if you will and uh, motorists, people that still drive their cars there. And you see that this is primarily a political debate as well, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. I, th I think what we see now with the climate crisis, it's, it's basically a political um, management failure, what's happening. And you cannot solve it by just only um, publishing the net next report. Mm -hmm. You have to show that the system is not functioning or not future-proof. Yeah. And you can do that by such yeah. direct actions. Yeah. I mean, again, going back to, uh, uh, like I said, one of our uh, previous guests here, Bart van den Hörk, uh, and I think he kind of implicitly referred to that as well. I mean, it doesn't start once you've uh, written your uh, sixth or seventh assessment report and you've published your, what is it, 1,500, 2,000 pages, um, and then you put it out in the public and then you say, well, the work is done, you do you. No, indeed, indeed. Yeah, there is uh, much yeah. more needed. And uh, even with the IPCC and with major climate um, agreements like in Paris, mm -hmm. the Paris Agreement has been there, but it was also pushed hugely yeah. by climate movements that were there in 2015 yeah. and years before. Mm -hmm. And so that push to make sure that what is public, published, mm -hmm. the academic, scientific, state-of-the-art knowledge, making sure that it is on the agenda, that's where activism can help. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, I, I want to go back to your work at Science or your work, your engagement within the, the network of Scientists Rebellion then. And one of the more publicized actions that you've done in, in 2023, and I think before that as well already, was those blockades of uh, the A12, I believe. Exactly, the A12. Uh, yeah, in the Netherlands, in The Hague. I exactly. Believe. And then this idea of nonviolence, and I'm going to be the devil's advocate here for, for a moment. And you say that is non-violence of course but you if you stretch it a little bit and you say we're gonna block a motorway and we're gonna make sure that people can't drive to work anymore that perhaps ambulances can't drive to the hospital anymore isn't that a form of exercising violence as well if i'm being very skeptical that's a very good question actually i'm inviting you now to a training because we do trainings about this where we need to show that violence in the end is some kind of a spectrum i mean there is very clear things that are very violent if it's harming people if it's harming infrastructure um then that you can definitely say that is violent but then um what what is harm you know if you have to make a detour by your car You can see that as a harm. And, and so we, we discuss this indeed. And so every time we design an action, we are very conscious on, okay, so do, who do we, um, do we target the right place, the right people? Do we harm people we don't actually want to harm? And what's worth it? And so with these actions in the, on the A12, it's actually at that point, it's not a highway anymore. It's the end of a highway that is in the middle of the center of The Hague. And it's not a random location. It is in between the Ministry of Economic Affairs and Climate and the Parliament. And that's the place to be for a demonstration. Your European demonstration law says you can demonstrate within a hearing distance of your uh, audience. So it's yeah. it's a specific location, not just to annoy people, but it has a meaning. Mm -hmm. And then I think in, in Scientist Rebellion, in Extinction Rebellion, that would be then um, important enough. And we make sure that we let ambulances pass, yeah. but cars can make a 10-minute or five-minute detour. Okay, that's good. The reason why I asked it, of course, is that I mean, these types of um, civil disobedience campaigns, uh, these these um, interruptions, if you will, of public life, um, they're often considered as somewhat, uh, or not just somewhat, but just uh, plain antagonistic. And then people say, or, or we throw back at you and say, well, this is counterproductive, this antagonism. Um, I'm assuming that you disagree with that critique. <laughs> I, I, I disagree that it is counterproductive because we have much research showing that it can actually help. Of course, you need both a pro, uh, pro protagonistic kind of activism going with people. And that's what I'm doing in my daily life, right? I'm a, a scientist, but I'm working, I'm helping policymakers to make their country more trot risk proof, more climate resilient. So that's my proactive way. Um, but it is shown that you, you need the diversity of approaches and then having another way of highlighting issues of um, spotting to problematic issues, then such a civil disobedience can help. And I think it's quite, uh, it's misunderstood in the sense people are not going to sit on the highway to be likable. Yeah. And that their goal is not to be the most popular people out there. No, their goal is exactly to make sure people hear their demands and make sure people see afterwards, I don't agree with what they did. But they have kind of a point. Yeah. And at that point, you put an idea in people's mind that maybe wasn't highlighted. And it maybe becomes an, an, an agenda point on the political agenda. And then you can create the change. Mm -hmm. And if there weren't a blockade, maybe that nice signs or that nice information yeah. that was out there would have never been noticed. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I guess relates to something what we were saying off the air uh, earlier. Um, even if they disagree with you, 
uh, with the demands because uh, I, if I remember correctly, your what was the reason again why you were doing these blockades? It was about fossil fuel subsidies. Yes, right? exactly. So the the bil billions of fossil fuel subsidies, like forty six billion, and so I, I think this is a nice example because when we started to blockade, the right. best estimate was four point six billion, yeah. and then there were. Um, not governmental research bodies, but other research bodies that try to investigate it and said, ah, maybe it's 17 or maybe it's 30 billion. And then they were like, no, you're kind of exaggerating hey, your activistic research institutes. But by being on the highway, we pushed the policymakers to be more transparent. And it means they found out it's actually uh, 46 billion euros every year that is going to subsidize fossil fuel use. And it's really limiting the amount of um, change we can make in terms of the energy transition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also number one in the IPCC reports of policies to implement. So it's not like some vague thing. No, it's a very clear policy demand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, just to be clear, the forty-six billion a year—that's in the Netherlands alone. Right? Uh, yes, exactly. That is in the level. no on a global level. It's obviously much, much, much more. And they also even calculated the amount of debts, and it's like a million debts a year because of the fossil fuel combustion that is there because of an unequal pricing because of the subsidies. And that's yeah. a study by the International Monetary Fund, so it's also yeah. uh, not like an activistic estimate. Yeah, yeah. And one million debts a year—that's um, at the global level, right? Uh, global level and yeah. air pollution alone so not climate yeah. disasters or climate change okay. related wow yeah those are uh, impressive figures but just all to make the point and that i find really intriguing is that you say well the activism in and of itself has to be antagonistic it has to create friction because even if people don't agree with what you're doing or the points that you're trying to make even it forces them to think about it that's exactly uh, what we try yeah. to do in it yeah yeah um, and ideally you do it in a direct way so you target directly, very symbolically, for example, another action we did is blocking a coal train. It's a, it's just one coal train, so it's not going to change the system, but it's very clear what we're doing, why we would be doing that. You know, we shouldn't do coal transports in Amsterdam anymore, especially not if it's like, I mean, it's just not needed. We have the alternatives out there. Uh, it's super polluting. And so by blocking a coal train, you do very directly showing, okay, this is just yep. something that's going on, a business as usual that we should stop if we want a livable future. I mean, I had to think about a really nice quote that I saw on your timeline on X or uh, formerly known as uh, Twitter, of course. Uh, I think it's a quote uh, attributable to Albert Einstein, who says, um, the, the, the privilege to know entails the duty to act. Um, so do you think that that is something that really applies to you, the fact that you are a scientist, you sit on top of this knowledge that you've gathered through your research, and that there is almost a moral duty to act on this information that you have, this knowledge? Yeah, for me personally, I think I think that's definitely true. I mean, we're in an academic institution, it's publicly funded. So that means I have a responsibility to society. And that means just if I see a risk, I have to warn about it. Um, but I think even broader than that, even if you're not a climate scientist, but you're researching any other field, you have access to have the right information and so you should you can do something with it and i think you should do something with it if we are in an emergency and we are yeah. um and i think one of the like a quote that relates to that 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 really influenced me is by james hansen he's like an a scientist from nasa who was one of the first in the u.s uh that he he was war warning um the u.s government about the dangers of climate change and then he, he warned it and then 20 30 years later he actually also start protesting um 
because then the U.S. was not listening to his advice of stopping with or reducing emissions, but he, uh, the U.S. was opening a new pipeline. And so what he said is, if we understand the situation, we must try to make it clear. I did not want my grandchildren to look back in the future and say, Opa understood what was happening, but he didn't make it clear. And I think that that that's kind of a... Uh, the privilege no means there is a duty to act and and that speaks to me a lot yeah, yeah. Uh, um so now we're talking at a personal level um of course we both work at a at an at an institution at a at a university the view amsterdam do you think that applies to universities or academia as a whole as well as in they have a certain societal role to play at a more yeah, let's call it institutional level, that they should act, act as activists almost as well? Yeah, in a broad sense of activism, I think, yes. I What is university? Why do we have universities? Because we want solutions to problems. We want a future that's better than what we have now. That's why we have universities. We want people that, be, that are more healthy, people that are more happy. We want to have uh, better ways of transport. We want to have better collaborations. And any type of research aims at improving the future. But if that future is under threat, well, then you have to make sure that what you're doing is actually not harming the future, for sure. But that you also have to be outspoken, hey, that future we are working for, the students we are educating to become the leaders of the future, they will not have that future because... We're currently in an emergency, we're in a crisis, and if we don't act differently, if we keep acting like we do now, we're losing that. We're going to end up in a crisis with a worst-case civilization collapse, but definitely food system collapses. We'll have disasters all the time, and especially the most vulnerable will be harmed the most. And I think as a university being a knowledge hub, I think you have that uh, responsibility in society We've seen in the past in, in major changes in, in society, for example, in the civil rights movement, universities did play a huge role of connecting people, supporting the science behind, uh, behind it and making sure that, that students could gather and form a movement and then make sure that they, they change society so people are more equal. Mm -hmm. um of course, uh, in the first part of this episode, then we talked to uh, Davide Januzzi, who's a chief impact officer here uh, at the VU Amsterdam and who's played a pivotal role also in, in um, well, the decision last year at the VU in 2023 to cut research ties with the fossil fuel industry. Um, how do you look then at this decision that the VU has made to cut research ties with the fossil fuel industry? Do you think this is a step in the right direction? Is it enough? Is it not enough? I mean, it's definitely brave and definitely great. So I'm, I'm really happy. I felt really proud working at the VU, having done such a major step together with all the staff, with students, mm -hmm. deciding on, hey, as and that also uh, links to our previous discussion on the role of universities. By working with institutions, we give them a social license. We say, hey, these are okay institutions. We can work with them. Mm -hmm. And so we were doing that with fossil fuel companies, while they, they actually don't have the same values as us, university, the VU University has its values to make a sustainable future. Companies like Shell literally say on, on radio, on news, yeah, you know, we're not going to keep our promises to reduce our emissions because we want to make profit. So their values don't align. And if you keep working with them, then you kind of hide that fact. We have, mm -hmm. we have made strong statements working with some countries or not with other countries because of 
misaligned values. So why wouldn't we do that with with companies? And that I think with especially in terms of fossil fuel companies, they have also played a major role in science denial. They have um created consciously they have created doubt about the cri- uh, climate crisis about the, the the concept of the greenhouse gas effect they have of the effect of warming on disasters they knew as the first the scientists from uh, from exxon mobile for example were the first to really predict the effects of uh, co2 emissions on temperature quite good uh, quite good predictions and they have hidden that information they have not brought it out with the aim to make more profits and that is very unethical and i think a university shouldn't work with unethical companies that are also blaming scientists and targeting scientists and trying to discredit scientists. So it's just a danger for scientific integrity at university as well. Yeah, that's a variety of arguments. And I think what, what Davide was saying also was the main argument for him was you cannot cooperate with um, those institutions, organizations who are at the hearts of the um well, the cause of the problem, yeah. which is the, the combustion of fossil fuels. <laughs> exactly. Antonio Guterres phrased it really, very nicely as their core business is, is our core problem. And I think yeah, yeah, that summarizes it. If they cannot shift their core business and they don't want to because they, their shareholders want them to just make most profit, whatever societal cost, if they cannot sh- change their core business, they will remain our core problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was scrolling through your um, uh, Twitter t- timeline. I- still have to say X timeline. It's not easy, of course. But in any case, I scroll through it. You're very outspoken. As you said, you're a climate activist, um, as you say about yourself. And then I read the comments um, <laughs> on the, the posts that you make. Um, and it's often extremely rude, completely off topic, and also very, very misogynistic. And mm-hmm. I wonder, I mean... How is it as a woman in academia or primarily as a female activist to deal with this stuff? Do you sense that there is a difference between male activists and female activists? Yeah, I've seen it a lot. Uh, It's hard to judge my own comments compared to others, but definitely with other outspoken women that are um, activists, we see... Yeah, disgusting comments, I'd say. I mean, it's not a surprise because we do activism because we want to bring up some some uncomfortable truth, some inconvenient truth to say, Mm -hmm. um, hey, we have to say, we have to change because we're among the richest 10% of the world. We're emitting half of the emissions globally so we're just overusing our our resources and that is impacting others and and that's not nice to hear so it's logical you get some reactions but then if you look at what what they say to women it's always worse it's like belittling it's indeed misogynic it's um you know i've had comments or just go cooking you know these kind of um but and and it has been worse uh, for other women for sure. So it's sad to see. Um, I mean, it's maybe you shouldn't be on on X for that. But I think yeah. I think also exposing others um, or if we just avoid all friction, then I don't think our message get there. So some friction is needed, but we have to take care of ourselves as well and yeah. just have time off screen and yeah. and focus on regeneration and and care for each other. And it's very sad to see that, especially women. In active yeah. activism, are um, yeah, yeah getting the worst of it. Yeah, it's an activism, but I I can imagine in politics in general as well. Absolutely, I mean in 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 the Netherlands, it has been very very clear with Kerch, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely. Um, we're nearing the end, but uh, something that we haven't really touched on, but that I think is really crucial, is this idea of justice and equity, because uh, you've mentioned it uh, already a couple of times as well. And I remember in the early days of Extinction Rebellion, at least it was often criticized for being overly white, overly uh, middle class, upper middle class, um, and overly apolitical. Um do you still think that is the case for Extinction Rebellion and then perhaps more specifically um, Scientist Rebellion? Do you address this more now? Yeah, I think I think Extinction Rebellion has never been apolitical. They are political in, in, in its core, you know. It's a political yeah. failure that they want to address, tell the truth, uh, act as uh, do what is necessary um and and let people decide let let, um, let voices be heard that's political message that doesn't mean it's party politics yeah. so extinction rebellion tries to avoid party politics mm -hmm. because i mean um that that creates another range of friction but i think we cannot say it's apolitical definitely not um or at least i i guess perhaps i formulated it wrongly at least there was a critique i think about the organization or the movement or the network uh, not sufficiently engaging with issues of class almost mm. of yeah. north south yeah. uh, divides no and, and that is true so the, the the criticism that it's quite wide is true and with scientist rebellion actually next weekend we're having a open strategy day where we're gonna address we invited people from fnv the unions yeah. we um are gonna think how can we be more we think we're welcoming but since yeah. we see that we are mainly white, that means we're not diverse enough, we're not welcoming enough, so we're going to be in somewhere how we can improve that. Um, so that's definitely definitely important issues to address, especially given that, you know, the indigenous communities are suffering the most. They're protecting most of our earth, like 80% of the biodiversity is protected by indigenous communities. They are suffering the most from climate impacts, but also from our extravism in our energy trans transition. So we should definitely do everything we can to get their voices heard even louder, also in the Netherlands. Um, and we're ac taking active steps, but I'm saying it's a, it's a learning process and we are not as far as I would like to be. Um, I think in respect to clause and, and equity, I think we have been trying to target, for example, super rich people uh, even more because we, you know, some of the actions we've done is, is for example, an isolation action. So trying to get all the rental houses being isolated, which is yeah. especially targeting the less wealthy part of society. And you, you, yeah, you need just to push these companies to to have all the houses isolated to a good level, and that that's going to reduce emissions a lot, and it's also going to reduce suffering. Um, and that's, for example, one action. But another action would be to target private jets or to target super yachts. Both things we have done, you know, to target this one percent richest people, the absolute elite, that are actually, you know, their yearly emissions are um, more than one million offshore wind turbines. So it's just insane how much they are emitting, and that's another issue we need to address. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that's 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 really important. And again, I'm I'm going back to what Bart van der Hoek was saying earlier in 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 the series, because he said, I mean, this differentiation between two big blocks, the global north and the global south, it's too it's too too remind, easy, too yeah. simplistic, of course, because you have poor people living in the Netherlands mm -hmm. as well in Belgium. In Western Europe, and you don't want them to pay for damages that are actually being 
um, uh, or that occur because no, you need you need definitely, and I think Extinction Rebellion is always consciously, and Scientist Rebellion as well is always consciously targeting policies that are. Um, increasing inequality, like the fossil fuel subsidies, right? If you have a big, big uh, factory of uh, bread making versus a family family bakery, which one is receiving most of the benefits of these um, subsidies is a big factory. The family bakery is going to suffer. So targeting policies that are also increasing inequality, this is something we try to do. Of course, it's it's something that is hard to make clear because um, other politicians are very easily or happy trying to reframe it to say, oh, but you're targeting these or these or these people. Well, um, so we, we maybe need to be more clear in that communication, but definitely also the third demand of, uh, of Extinction Rebellion is let citizens decide, do citizens assemblies and have people's voices out there. So we make solutions that are carried by society that are wanted uh, by people if they know what are the consequences uh, without having all the yeah, all the the politic political narratives we want to have yeah. people's own narratives. Okay, all right. So that's interesting. So it's also a critique of the political system that you're voicing in the sense that you say current parliamentary democracies aren't sufficient uh, enough. I think we can, if you are in such a crisis, if you we are in an emergency mode, and and then you can go all uh, authoritarian. Then authoritarian, authoritarian yeah. and and really say okay this has to be done this has to be done and that's a fast way to do it but definitely not a just way to do no, it uh, not a fair way to do it so our idea is to strengthen democracy by having these citizen assemblies uh, okay. as it has shown that it can increase uh, the carrying uh, the, the willingness to accept solutions but also it there are just better solutions that are created. If you said, if you bring normal people, just everyone, if you bring them together and let them brainstorm about solutions, it works sometimes better than than, uh, than we're currently doing. So strengthening democracy is definitely important in a crisis like this. Okay, yeah, so it's an addition to what already exists and it yes. doesn't necessarily have to replace... Uh, no, it would be it would be wonderful if, if, if yeah. such a citizen's assembly would, would carry some weight. So if the decisions yeah. made there have to be considered by the parliament, that would be wonderful. Yeah, there are some examples, but I don't know how far it went. Of course, for example, in France with that citizen assembly... Same in Ireland as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay. There are some examples of it yeah. worked. And in the Netherlands, they're experimenting with it as well, which is great to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but perhaps uh, stuff for uh, a completely uh, different. Yeah, and also uh, not as not episode. my scientific field. I'm yeah. sure you can find yeah. other scholars yeah, that yeah. can tell more yeah, about absolutely. it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we're 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 uh, nearing the end of of uh, this episode, or at least this part of the episode. And I was. Um, Got two more questions for you. Uh, what's in the Scientist Rebellion pipeline heading into 2024? Yeah, uh, one of the things we would really like is uh, to strengthen uh, radical climate education. It sounds really scary, but what we mean with it is uh, we want all students to understand the root causes of the planetary crisis we are in. The, we're transgressing six out of nine planetary boundaries. And what's the cause of this? What leads to what? And seeing that system in a holistic way, exactly like what we were talking about before, because that will give people also the tools to actually contribute to creating a, a more sustainable world. So that having all students ac- having access to such climate education would be one of the goals we want to strive for. Um, and then making sure other universities cut the ties with fossil companies next to the VU, following the lead of the VU, would be another uh, point on our agenda. 
And as I was saying, working more with indigenous groups, with with uh, unions is on our agenda. And given that uh, the government uh, still hasn't made true to his promise of the stopping the fossil fuel subsidies, while at the COP they have said they would lead a global alliance to do so, uh, we're going to be back on the streets, back on the A12 to yeah. push further for the stopping the fossil fuel subsidies. Um, and recording this in the beginning, mid-January, I guess that's also going to depend on which new government coalition is going to come into power um, here in the Netherlands in 2024. Um, final question, Marte. Um, I've asked everyone so far uh, the same question. I've heard you talk or we've talked about climate anxiety, climate emergency, um, everything that's heading into our direction. Given all of that, are you an optimist or a pessimist? Yeah, I think when it comes to the future, we, we shouldn't only predict it, but really make it possible. And I am not really optimistic about all the disasters that we are facing when we trans when we are transgressing all these planetary boundaries. I'm not optimistic about governments making the needed changes to uh, to their systems to mitigate climate change to well below uh, two degrees to one and a half degrees. But I am very optimistic about what we can do. Uh, that's why I'm an activist. Um, yeah, I mean. I'm an activist because I think if all people get out of their comfort zone, get on the street of do, or do something else, we can make the changes that are needed um, and we can avoid much, much worse than what we are facing now. Call to action. Thank you very much, Marte Wens. You're welcome. Well, that was it for today. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Before I leave you, I want to thank my guests for joining us. I also want to thank Nela of the Climate Expertise Center for helping us realize this show. Um, the VU Campus Radio for hosting us, and Floris and his team over at Podcastiel for producing it. But most of all, I want to thank you for joining us and listening. Definitely check out our other Climate Breakdown episodes as well. And if you want to learn more about our work, visit the website of our Climate Expertise Center or get in touch directly. Thanks, and catch you later. <laughs>